Welcome. This is podcast number seven, the last of our podcasts for the last of our series in the Gospel of Mark. The title of this podcast is Mark's Horrible, Wonderful Ending. Mark's Horrible, Wonderful Ending. Come Sunday, we will be in the last three chapters of Mark, Mark 14, 15, and 16. This is the Passion Narrative, that is, the story of Jesus' sufferings, death, and resurrection. It's all a pretty familiar story. We have it in all four Gospels in somewhat different shapes, but basically the same story. The geography is, again, still Jerusalem, but now it's not focused around the temple or the to and from between Jerusalem and Bethany. Now it's focused around the Sanhedrin, the upper room, Gethsemane, the high priest's house, Pilate's headquarters, Golgotha, the tomb, uh, all of those scenes that are part of the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, there is one other geographical piece in this section of Mark. In chapter 14, at the Last Supper, Jesus will tell the disciples, um, After I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. He says they're going to be scattered, um, and he will be left alone. But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So Galilee shows up again. And then at the, at the empty tomb in chapter 16, verse 7, the young man there in the tomb tells these bewildered women, Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. Just as There you will see him, just as he told you. So the, the geography of this last section is Jerusalem, especially the scenes of trial and death. Uh, but then there's this arrow pointing forward to Galilee. As you think about that, and we, and we will talk about this on Sunday, we'll explore it together. I'd like you to be thinking in advance about what does Galilee mean then? Mark, Mark again, typically, I assume, means it literally that he will... Beyond the bounds of this story, he will meet them back in Galilee, and they'll see him there. But Galilee is also thematic. Think about what Galilee meant for Jesus' ministry, what Jesus was up to back in Galilee. I will go before you to Galilee. There you will see me. So that's the geography. The story, of course, is the passion narrative, the gathering storm, the Passover feast with death surrounding it, then on to Gethsemane and to trial and to the cross, followed by the shocking ending. And then, just as last time, we still have this king stuff um, working through and kingdom stuff. When does the kingdom come and all the explosion of king talk at the cross? Uh, that's all parts of, part of chapter 14 through 16, and we'll be exploring that on Sunday. What I want to spend our time on right now is Mark's horrible, wonderful ending. If you're familiar with Mark, you may be aware already that there's a question about how in the world this gospel ends. Uh, the way my particular text here, this is the new RSV, lays it out, you've got verses 1 through 8. That's the, the empty tomb scene. And then there's what the text, what this editor calls the shorter ending of Mark, uh, just a quick two-sentence shorter ending. And then there's the longer ending of Mark, this is verses 9 through 20, that includes a bunch of other stuff. 
So you've got these two different additional endings to Mark. Um, and in fact, some ancient manuscripts have none of them. Some have one of them. Some have the other. Some have both of them. And there's even one that has an additional piece in the middle of one of those. We'll explore that. with all of these endings. <clears throat> now, let's look at how Mark ends at the end of verse 8, if that, in fact, were to be the ending of this gospel. So the women come to the tomb. They discover the stone is already rolled back. They peek inside, and there's this young man sitting there in the tomb. He tells them, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus who is crucified. He's not here. He's risen. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you'll see him. Then verse 8. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. End of story. How does that ending feel? It seems pretty honest. Here are these women who are utterly shocked and scared stiff. They run away in terror. They tell no one? Ever? The ending is even worse when you read it in Greek because it ends in a preposition. It's a weird, weird way to end. We'll, we'll talk together on Sunday about how that kind of an ending feels what it feels like to end it there. That was such a horrible ending. And part of the problem of the ending that of ending it there, it, it's really twofold. One is that we never see the risen Jesus. We hear that he's raised from the dead, but we don't get to see him. And second is that the women never tell anybody. How in the world does the story get out if they never tell anybody? Clearly they must have sooner or later but Mark doesn't narrate it. Well, so awful an ending is this that pretty early on, other folks felt like we got to add some sort of ending to this. Now, whether Mark actually originally ended that way or whether there was an ending that got lost, we don't know for sure. My conviction is that Mark actually ended that way on purpose. But let's look at these other endings and what they have in them. So, this one called the shorter ending of Mark goes like this. All that, they had been, all that had been commanded them, the women, they told briefly to those around Peter. And afterwards, Jesus himself sent, sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. There's a little more satisfying ending, but look at how jarring that is. They fled and they said nothing to anyone, and then all that they'd been commanded, they told briefly to those around Peter. That ending just fixes it. It really contradicts what Mark has said. And finish it, they, get, they report, Jesus sends them out, the gospel goes out, end of story. That's the shorter ending. This one, by the way, is in, it shows up in, by itself in only one manuscript. It's um, a Latin manuscript in the Western church tradition, 
uh, from somewhere over in the western part of the Mediterranean. So there's one, so somewhere over there, somewhere in the Latin world, somebody added this one and it spread to other, other texts too. The longer ending, let's look and see what's in this. Verses 9 through 11 is a quick, not very satisfying, but a quick thumbnail sketch of Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene outside the tomb. It's clearly a brief version of the one in John 20. Then, verses 12 and 13, he appears to two of them as they're walking in the country, and they went back and told the rest. It's a really unsatisfying Cliff Notes version of the walk to Emmaus in Luke 24. Then in verse 14 through 18, uh, Jesus shows up to with the 11 in the upper room. We've got versions of that in Luke 24 and in John 20. So we've got plenty of different passages that talk about Jesus showing up in that room. Um, one of the uniquenesses of this version of it is that uh, Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith. And then, then there's a particular uh, a commissioning of the disciples that's unique to Mark um, that goes on for a few verses. Um, and then finally, verses 11, 19 and 20 at the end, it's the, um, the ascension of Jesus and the going out of the gospel that we would see at the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts. It appears that someone has simply taken kind of a quick, quick version of many of these other gospel stories and finished out Mark with this. There's also an additional piece. I have to read you this one. Uh, in the middle of that, there's one manuscript from 4th or 5th century that includes, in the middle of Jesus, commissioning these words. The disciples are excusing themselves for their unbelief. They say, the, This age of lawlessness and unbelief is under Satan, who does not allow the truth and power of God to prevail over the unclean things of the spirits. Therefore reveal your righteousness now. Thus they spoke to Christ. And Christ replied to them, The terms of years of Satan's power has been fulfilled, but other terrible things draw near. And for those who have sinned, I was handed over to death, that they might return to the truth and sin no more, that they may inherit the spiritual and imperishable glory of righteousness that is in heaven. That doesn't sound like Mark's gospel at all. It's not his language, it's not his focus, it's just weird. It's not untrue, it's just strange. Okay, so what do these other endings accomplish? Well, they finish, they finish it out. They give, us, they give us a chance to see Jesus alive, and they commission. they commission the disciples to go out with the message. That's what they accomplish. What do they do to Mark's gospel? They don't fit Mark's gospel. It's not Mark's language. It's not his concerns, his, his narrative flow. It doesn't fit Mark at all. What they really do to Mark's gospel is they jarringly fix it at the end. I want to talk with you a little about uh, the textual evidence. So here's the situation. Uh, we have an amazing richness of evidence for the Gospels. Uh, manuscript evidence. Ancient papyri, um, old um, capital letter manuscripts where when things were still written all in caps. 
uh, small letter ones when they develop that kind of way of doing it. We've just got tons and tons of tons. It's something like 5,000 manuscripts of portions of the New Testament. You know, something like one of Aeschylus's plays. They might have one manuscript or four. Or some of Plato's works, there might be just a few copies of, from, the ancient, from the ancient world. We have 5,000 copies from the first, what, 10 centuries, maybe, of the, Christian, of the Christian life. It's a richness. Um, with that many manuscripts, do you, how many of them do you suppose are identical from the days when we didn't have printing presses yet? Here's how it was done. Uh, back in those days, to reproduce a manuscript someone would either sit down, you'd have the copy that was in front of you, and you'd be copying another one side by side, trying to copy it as accurately as you can, but you're bound to make mistakes once in a while. We all do. Or, maybe one person would, maybe you'd gather a group of scribes together, a group of people who are going to be writing down copies. Maybe you're going to produce five copies of this gospel, at one time, and so one person stands and reads, while the others write it down. Well, then you've got the problem of maybe not hearing it right. Mistakes could happen. Uh, there are mistakes of hearing it, mistakes of seeing it, just easy mistakes that happen all the time to normal human beings. And most of those mistakes are obvious when you see them in these manuscripts. You can see why they arose. You can see how it happened. Um, a, letter, a word might get doubled, a line might have, if there are similar lines, one might get dropped out. Um, that's just a typical thing that happens. There are also intentional changes that get made. Imagine somebody is sitting down uh, copying a manuscript and they come across a word that doesn't look right. Something seems, that can't be the right word. If you remember back, for example, in the story of Jesus and the leper back in Mark 1, um, the text says Jesus um, became angry and did such and such. They would look at that and say, that can't be right, and so they fix it to Jesus, moved with compassion, did such and such. So you fix the text, or maybe the, maybe the one who's copying down Mark um, also knows the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew is a little different, and so as you're writing, you might accidentally uh, conform your copy of Mark so that it matches Matthew better, accidentally or on purpose. There are all kinds of ways that these variant readings pop in. So what do scholars do about that? How do you figure out, by the way, with all of these, all of these variant readings that happen, there's nothing that really affects the doctrines of our faith and, our, and the foundations of our belief. Um, it's little things here and there. Um, how do you decide? But then how do you decide what's the, what's the original reading? What's the earliest reading and which ones are the changes? A lot of it's just common sense. There's a process, there are two processes. One of them is what they would call internal evidence. As you are looking at the texts, can you make sense out of how one text would give rise to another? So let's say, for example, with that story of, 
of uh, Jesus and the leper in Mark 1. One says Jesus moved with anger. The other says Jesus moved with compassion. Which one would give rise to the other? Well, nobody's going to take Jesus moved with compassion and change it to Jesus moved with anger. They're going to fix it instead. That makes it more likely that Jesus moved with anger is the, is the earlier and accurate reading because somebody didn't like it and they fixed it. Um, or let's say, for example, that you've got um, two texts. One of them is... I'm thinking of right now of one in, in Mark uh, 9 when Jesus is healing that boy at the mount of trans at the foot of the mount of transfiguration and afterwards the disciples are wondering why why couldn't we cast that out and Jesus says this kind comes out only by prayer only a variant reading says by prayer and fasting which happens to be by the way Matthew's reading um, well can you make sense out of which one would someone add and fasting because it fits Matthew, or would they drop out and fasting? It's far more likely that they would add, that they would expand. People tend to expand when they smooth things out. Those are the kinds of, of uh, wrestlings that scholars do as they work on what's, what's the earliest text. And they come up with them with some kind of standards. One, for example, is everything else being equal it's more likely that the shorter reading is the original because we tend to add things. Or, if everything else is equal, it's more likely that the harsher reading is the original because we tend to fix things. We tend to smooth things out. Now, there are several other canons like that or rules, rules of the road. And so it's, it's just a pro the internal evidence is a process of making sense out of how would one reading give rise to another. Well, with this ending of the Gospel of Mark, it's obvious which is the shortest reading. The shortest reading ends the Gospel at the end of verse 8. And you can come up with some pretty good reasons why anybody would add to it. It's a horrible ending. It's also a wonderful ending, I think. But we'll talk about that on Sunday as to why it's wonderful. Um, it's a horrible ending. We want to get Jesus risen from the dead where we can see him. We want to get the story finished, not just women running away scared stiff. So the to add pieces on, it's very clear that someone added that shorter ending at some point because they felt like they had to, and the original did not include that. It's pretty evident that someone added this other longer ending with these kind of short version, abbreviated cliff notes versions of the other gospel stories to fill out the ending. But they don't match Mark at all. Um, and then when you, when you see other texts, other manuscripts yet that will have both endings, it's pretty clear that somebody sat down and said, well, here's a, a, a gospel of Mark with a short ending. Here's a gospel of Mark with a long ending. Which one is right? I don't know. Let's put them both in. That's how that process goes. So in terms of internal evidence, um, it's a pretty easy no-brainer that the earliest manuscript that we have evidence of, the earliest version of Mark that we know of, ended at verse 8. 
The other process is what they call external evidence, and that's looking at which manuscripts have which readings. And this is not a simple, simply a matter of taking those 5,000, or however many of them happen to have Mark 16, and um, adding them up. It's not, count, it's not a counting, it's not a vote process. I want you, I want you to imagine again that, that we're back in this room with somebody reading this, the manuscript to five other people who are each writing it down. So they're all doing their best. Some of them are really careful and skillful, and their, their version of it is, is a pretty faithful reproduction of the one that they are hearing. But there's another one who doesn't work quite so well and who makes some mistakes and occasionally a different word slips in or they forget a piece or whatever. Now, imagine that each of those five now goes out and repeats the process. Each of them, each of them finds five other people and they read their version to them and the others copy it. What's going to happen to the manuscript of that one who made the mistakes? All those mistakes are going to be replicated. They're, they're going to, it's going to start a whole genealogy, a whole family of that text version. That's exactly what happened in the ancient world. And so the, the, the scholars who study these texts have come to identify text families and the characteristics of some of those text families. And so the Western text the Western text family is the one that had that shorter ending. The, uh, the, the one with the best reputation, with the most ancient and faithful and careful work, they call the Alexandrian text. And they've come to identify then certain key manuscripts that are early and faithful, and they're not perfect. None of them is perfect. Um, but if you're, if you're watching variant readings, you start to watch for where do, those, where do those early, excellent manuscripts line up. Well, what we get in Mark 16 is that the, the best early examples, the manuscripts, if any of you are studying this stuff, I'm thinking particularly of manuscript Sinaiticus and manuscript Vaticanus, that's the Aleph and the B in the notations. If you're not a student of this, that's I just uttered gobbledygook. Um, those best early manuscripts and the translations into Coptic, the Coptic language, uh, some of those line up clearly with omitting anything beyond the end of, omitting everything beyond verse 8. None of those has anything beyond verse 8. There aren't very many of those, but they're powerful witnesses. And then you can watch with the manuscript evidence in these other readings, who adds the short ending, who adds the long ending. The long ending then tends to spread throughout all the families as time goes on. And actually, most of the ancient manuscripts, as time goes on, have both the short and the long. You can just watch it build, and you can draw a family tree of how it all builds. That's the process that scholars go through. So the internal process is thinking through the logic of how would one reading arise out of another? And can I tell which is the earliest? And the external evidence is looking at the manuscripts and knowing who are the 
which ones are the most faithful. Um, and that's where you'll see a footnote saying the earliest and most and most uh, faithful. I guess this one just says some of the most ancient authorities bring the book to a close at the end of verse 8. Um, but it's, this one actually is a pretty clear-cut example. In both internal and external evidence, the scholars are unanimous in this. The earliest, the earliest, the earliest version of the Gospel of Mark that we have ends with verse 8. And that means either that Mark intended to end at verse 8, or that there was some other ending that got lost early on. My take is that Mark intended to end where it ends at verse 8. And we'll wrestle with that on Sunday. And what I invite you to be thinking about between now and then are, if Mark ends at verse 8, what are the problems that that poses? What might be the purpose of ending at verse 8? What power does Mark's gospel have if it ends at verse 8? And what is this about Galilee and the kingdom of the gathering God? That's where we're going on Sunday. <laughs>